0: lock your doors close the blinds change your passwords this is the dry cleaner cast Welcome to The Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr.
1: The Dry Cleaner Cast is a series of podcasts that look at terrorism and espionage in the 21st century. The podcast is a companion to my short film, The Dry Cleaner. We hope by helping people further understand the complexity and sensitivity of the issues that surround terrorism, we can be a part of the necessary debate that will help defeat terrorism in the near future. On Episode 2 of the Dry Cleaner cast, I'm joined by spy historian and author Paddy Hayes. We discuss the function and need of intelligence, and we also discuss what makes a good spy.
0: Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner.
1: Thank you for joining
2: us on the Drug Cast today, Paddy. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here.
1: Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to focus on espionage as a point of research?
2: Yeah, it, it's a difficult question to answer. I... Um I've been interested in espionage, interested in spies for as long as I can remember. I uh, bought my first non-fiction book on spies in about 1965-66 and that's a long time ago and uh, I've been interested in, in, in it ever since. I decided that I had no interest in becoming involved in the profession and um, so I, did, I, did, I had a standard business career. Uh, but I really have been following spies and spied them, if you like, for the last 40-50 years. Yeah, I like that phrase, yes, <laughs> "spiedom."
1: Espionage is often called the second oldest profession, and a lot of people are kind of critical of the actions and methods of intelligence today. So, what is the point of intelligence, and could we live without it?
2: Um, I don't think we could live without it. it. It has a number of its two main purposes, really. Um, the first purpose of intelligence is to acquire information. Uh, that is not otherwise available. So so that really would be the definition. So if you can find something out by reading it in the newspaper, then you don't need an intelligence agency. Uh, So agencies focus on getting information that's not publicly available. They also focus on shaping and altering events to their government's liking. Uh, And that's been around for a long time and is unlikely to go away.
1: And in the UK, we sort of have like three key intelligence services, MI5, MI6 and GCHQ. We also have military services and now counter-terrorism command. Can you just give us a little bit of an overview of their sort of different missions today?
2: Sure. The, the, the three, if you like, civilian agencies uh, would be uh, GCHQ, MI5 and the Secret Intelligence Service, also known as, as MI6. Uh, SIS focuses really on on gathering intelligence from overseas and, and, and becoming involved. So it's effectively, it's that, that classic split of uh, internal and external. So SIS looks after uh, Britain's interests overseas. MI5 uh, looks after threats that either emanate from within Britain or... may emanate from overseas, but are taking place within Britain. So it it, it will hunt on spies, for example. It will also look at things like subversion and so on, uh, very strong in anti-IRA work and that thing. GCHQ's role has changed and evolved over the years. Um, And uh, it used to do what was called Farmgate Intelligence, which was it did its listening and then dumped the, the files and the tapes into the other people's hands for analysis. It's now heavily involved. Uh, by virtue of the internet and shaping activities and, and things that are far, far more complex than that. Military, military intelligence will focus on, on military issues, things that tend to relate fairly directly to, to the, the military mission. Uh, and then of course you then have uh, the Counterterrorism Command, and that is, is the only one of the, all of the agencies that we spoke about uh, that has the power of arrest. And so it's really a part of law enforcement. Uh, it does intelligence work, but it's really law enforcement gathering evidence, laying charges.
1: And do MI5 work a lot with counter-terrorism command
2: as well? Yeah, they do, hugely, uh, particularly MI5 MI5 is the lead agency, um, and then they have um, a joint threat uh, analysis centre in London uh, where intelligence is fed in from all of the various sources uh, and collected and analysed collectively, uh, and they would work very, very closely. And uh, one of the changes that's taken place in the last number of years is MI5 have a series of regional offices Uh, which they hadn't have really since the Second World War, I don't think, but they have them now, yeah. So in all the big centres of population, there'll be an MI5 office liaising with the local uh, counter-terrorism police. So
1: let's talk a little bit about recruitment, one of the more important aspects of intelligence, possibly um, most important next to signals intelligence. In popular culture, spies are typically portrayed as lone men going undercover, but in reality it's far more complex than that. Can you tell us a little bit about the kind of mechanics of espionage?
2: Yeah, um, intelligence officer. Most of Britain's intelligence officers um, overseas will be based in an embassy and, and they, will, they will have what's cover as a, as a diplomat. And, and their job really will be, will be to, to run, if you like, any agents that they may have. So if, they, if you took up the post tomorrow, there might be half a dozen agents, your job will be to run them for the two or three years you're there. Uh, then to look out for potential news sources, um maybe because of specific interest or just in general terms um, another area then is to look out for for opportunities for technical attack in other words places that you might plant a listing device and um, and then the fourth would be to engage in operations and, and that's the the daily <clears throat> grind of an intelligence officer uh, on on post in a, in an overseas post uh, that a mixture of those things
1: and what are the qualities <coughs> of a good intelligence officer and are they all men
2: oh yeah um there there has been a change um uh women have had a role in in, in 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 the in the business but it has been very much a minority role um and it is becoming much more evenly balanced um the qualities I, when I talk to them I talk to quite a few of them uh, and I so sort of say to them that that um you know, you'd probably have made a very good car salesman, which they, they don't necessarily like at all. Um, they, they, they're very empathetic, you know, so they're good because they're persuading somebody um, to betray their country or their cause, essentially. So, so they, 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 they portray this very sort of warm personality. They're interesting people. Um, oh, a diplomat said they're jack the lads. And I think there's a, there's a degree of jack the lad about them. I mean, their alternative choice of career was not managing a call centre. Yeah. So, that may, I know that you can't define something as a negative. So, so they are like that very pragmatic and very patriotic. Yeah. Very patriotic. And um, you've written a book about one key um, woman intelligence, such
1: as Daphne Park.
2: Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Daphne um, joined the Special Operations Executive in the Second World War. And then a couple of years after the war ended, she, she got into SIS. Um, and she served, she served from about 1948 to 79, so she did the full 30 years in the heart of the Cold War. And she served in places like Moscow and Hanoi, uh, lots of time in Africa. And she was an agent runner, recruiter. Her particular skill, um, was in in what SIS calls parallel diplomacy, and that is getting very close to to maybe heads of state, people of power and influence, um, and being able then to to put Britain's case for specific issues to the highest level without having to go through a foreign office filter or something like that. She was exceptionally good at that. Paddy, am I right in believing that you actually uh, met with Daphne Park? Yes, Chris. I was doing some research. Um, in fact, it was for a piece of fiction I was involved in originally. Um, and I was looking for a character and looking for information about a character. And Daphne uh, gave an interview for Panorama Television. And I, I heard about it and read about it. And it sort of struck me uh, that, that um, if she was prepared to be interviewed for, by the BBC, she might be prepared to meet me. And um, by coincidence, um, there was... Um, a Lib Dem Lord in the House of Lords, uh, Jeff Tordoff, uh, who is a very close family friend. And so I asked Jeff um, if he would ask Daphne if she would agree to meet me. And she hesitated at first um, and then she did with, with, with some conditions. So we had afternoon tea, one sunny sunny day uh, in, the, in, the, in the House of Lords and, and I chatted to her for about 45 minutes or so. As an extraordinary woman, um, a, a, a sort of a former sort of colleague, uh, a subordinate of hers, a man called Jean de Saint George, who was also in SIS, uh, uh, described her as as sort of fifty percent Miss Marple's and fifty percent Rosa Klebb, who was that that evil uh, heroine from the early Bond movies, and and that was her. I mean, she was um, formidable uh, to to meet. She could be charming. Um, and um, then we had our meeting and, and, and that was it. And, and then I sort of kept an eye, not kept an eye on her, but I, you know, if she, if she said something public, I made a note of it. And then when she died, I, my interest had switched from fiction to non-fiction. And I waited a couple of years and I decided I, I would write her biography, uh, which was published this time last year called Queen of Spies and um, in hardback in London and New York and the paperback is actually coming out next week I think the paperback here and in the states so I'm delighted with that it's her biography it's only about the third biography of of a SAS member ever there it's not the easiest of topic but I'm not looking for pity Uh, (laughs) it was a voluntary exercise Um, and enough of her former colleagues uh, let me say cooperated with me uh, to make it I think a pretty decent read. Excellent and what do you think makes a good spy well, you've got to be focused, um, you've got to be tough, um, you've got to um, be good at understanding people, understanding relationships, reading them. Uh, those, are, those are the sort of skills, very much sort of people skills. I mean, somebody that would, would, would be um, a very, very good relationship salesperson in a commercial sense would probably have some of the qualities, that ability to maintain relationships, uh, to read people, to understand them. You're working with people who essentially, as I said, are, are providing you with information they shouldn't be providing you with. They're under stress, they're under tension. Their motivations are wildly varying, and you really have just got to keep them on this even keel at all times, keep the information coming and manage them and they're, they're those sort of skills so so they have to, they have those skills, and you know ruthlessness will be one of them yeah yeah and what what kind of um person does an intelligence officer look for well it, it's funny in, 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 in the sense that that in very many cases the approach comes from the agent really um, so so what, what certainly in the Cold War and since then uh, what the intelligence service does is it provides what they would call a welcome mat so there's a welcome mat and um, and so that if you're then um, inclined then or you want to, 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 to spy for your spy you want to betray your country maybe you have a drink problem maybe you have a, a career you've been passed over for promotion you're resentful maybe you have money problems maybe your wife has left you or if you've left your wife Wife. And so you're fundamentally dissatisfied because, you know, if you think about it, if you're working for an intelligence agency and you decide to betray that intelligence agency, it's a huge, huge step. It's irrevocable. Uh, you'll never go back on it. And, and so most cases, not all, but in most cases, it's the agent who makes that first approach. Um, and then the intelligence service then will, will spend a lot of time uh, trying to make sure that's genuine. You know, they're not being, being fooled or whatever it might be uh, before they will react to it. Mm.
1: So if an agent kind of comes to you, typically would that be then for like ideological reasons, like with the case of Oleg Gordievsky?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Gordievsky was uh, was um, unusual. Um, first of all, in the, that he was prepared to to stay on site for 12 years. Uh, he does not seem to have been motivated by, by money at all, um, or by ego in that sense. He seems to have been uh, genuinely disillusioned with the Soviet system. Was so one of the problems then, is somebody like Gordievsky, not talking about him necessarily but somebody in his situation finds is that when they do come over um, that their use or their value fades very very quickly and they can become very very frustrated and very disillusioned uh, and find themselves really in, in, in a sort of no man's land really. It can be quite sad. The history of, of uh, defectors when they come across is not, not a great one you know, at all
1: because there have been some stories people learn going back haven't they because of this
2: situation (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean you know you can and um I wouldn't recommend it really. <laughs> just, I just wouldn't recommend it. No. <laughs> no, no, you you, you know, I think this is a make your bed and lie on it really, you know. Yeah, I think so.
1: <laughs> so once an intelligence officer has recruited an agent, how do they then pass information to one another?
2: This is um traditionally it's the most difficult aspect of of the business because um whilst it's at that point of contact is where of course the greatest danger um, comes and 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 so there's a huge effort has gone in in in, in to, to trying to sort of make that safe and of course then there are counter efforts and um, so so you have you have basically face-to-face meetings the general <clears throat> the general rule of thumb is that you need to meet an agent at least once a year face to face and spend some time with that agent. Uh, traditionally, um, British intelligence has used things like the flats of their secretaries for meetings like that. And and so you need to have at least one meeting a year where you can eyeball them and look at it and, 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 and get a read because, you know, critically important to make sure your agent hasn't been turned and that they've gone from giving you good information to false information and that can really only be done face to face now after that you look at a variety of, of of methods i mean the internet obviously offers huge opportunities and you'd have and none of us would have any idea of what the type of stuff they might do however the internet by and large of its nature leaves traces uh, so so if you have an agent in his home or her home and they have a computer and they're logging onto the internet no matter how sort of clever and so on it is, there's going to be some electronic traces left there that that can be picked up forensically. So 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 it has tremendous advantages and some disadvantages. Uh, then you have have um, s- situations where you can have like localized electronic communications, like Bluetooth or near field. Uh, the famous rocks that British intelligence rocks that were discovered in Moscow are a good example of that, where where the the agent and and the officer would arrive separately, or they mightn't actually sort of touch the rock they might pass within 20 feet of the rock but they were still found which was interesting um, you have number stations and um, what 's very attractive about number stations is it's called one way one way voice link uh, it, the information <clears throat> is broadcast uh, on a radio station in code and it leaves no trace uh, all you need is a reasonably sophisticated household radio uh, widely available that will they maybe take shortwave or long wave but there's no trace and once you've turned that radio off nobody will know that you have listened to it and so that's attractive but it's only one way whereas the internet of course can be two-way. I mean uh, during the Cold War the Americans uh, they, they, some Russians might have subscribed to an international magazine and the Americans would have picked up a copy of that magazine and would print it a tiniest of tiny messages just on one page and put it back into the post and it would be delivered by the postman and stuff like that so uh, the ingenuity is extraordinary. extraordinary. Um, the problem is that once the local counterintelligence service focus on you, then you have to be able to withstand the most intense investigation uh, that you will be subjected to, and that's, that, that means no traces.
1: Mm. And this is where like, the importance of things like dry cleaning come in, being able to detect surveillance. So just talk to us a little bit about
2: that. Yeah, I was talking to an officer recently, and, and each, each officer has his or her own techniques. Uh, in Essentially, what, what, they, what they will talk about in the first instance is the elimination of risk. Uh, So if I'm an intelligence officer and I'm meeting an agent um, and if there's any chance at all uh, that my identity is known to the local intelligence services, then if I meet that agent and then the agent is identified through that meeting, I have sentenced him or her. To a death or a very, very long time in imprisonment. So I must make absolutely certain before I attend any agent meeting uh, that I am not under surveillance and I'm not effectively leading my agent into a trap. And that means going on maybe one, two, three, four hours counter surveillance. Um, one officer I know uh, liked to meet in the country at night where he said he could pick up surveillance. So if there was a car following him, he would see the lights. Other officers I know like woods and they will go into a wood and deep into wood and they will approach it, the officer will approach it from one direction, the agent from another, uh, making it very, very difficult for counterintelligence to spot them. So that those said, agent meetings, you, you have just, you cannot send your agent to the firing squad. No, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or to jail, so you must be careful. Yeah, yeah.
1: And um, in our technological age, a lot of people ask, do we really need human intelligence
2: anymore? The analogy I would, I would give you on that, Chris, and it would be this. If, if you can take Edward Snowden, that we all know about. If Edward Snowden, instead of, of being a whistleblower, whether you agree with him or not, if, if Edward Snowden had just been an agent for Russian or Chinese intelligence, and instead of broadcasting this 20,000 documents on the net, he just handed the 20,000 documents to his controller, and, and his employers wouldn't have known about it at all. Think of what an extraordinary advantage that would have given the, the, any intelligence service, say, that Russia. Chinese uh, so while the, while the technology uh, is being used to gather the intelligence a human uh, can betray it uh, so humans can, can always betray so in terms of proportionality of course uh, you know if, if, if there was a big bucket called intelligence probably 90% of it is filled by the signals people and 10% by, by the human sources but they can be very important because they can, betray the, they can betray the technology anyway.
1: Yeah, and I suppose people also provide a, a context to things that may be through signal intelligence you're looking at only like one side of the picture.
2: Yeah, and I mean, you know, if you, if, you, if you think about just normal human interaction and all the meetings say that somebody like you would have in your work or I would have in my work um, and what we would communicate via email is, is, is important and it's a part of it, but it's maybe it's 10% of what we actually do. Uh, in terms of all the human interactions that we have with people in the meetings, we're sitting around the table and looking at people and talking to them and so on. So signals intelligence will pick up the signals. So it doesn't pick up the other activities. And as you said, context and tone. Yeah. Both
1: um, MI5 and MI6 have had to adapt to a changing world and priorities as the Cold War
2: ended. Do their tactics differ when
1: trying to run agents in the fight against terrorism?
2: Yeah, the, the, there's a fundamental difference between... Um, intelligence uh, directed against terrorism and um, intelligence uh, directed against other states. Uh, 90% of of agent recruitment in in, if you were like traditional intelligence if we can use that assertion is voluntary and there are things like honey traps and stuff like that but but 90% of it is is, is voluntary Uh, and I said the agent approaches or is approached they sign up and and off we go. In counterterrorism if it's voluntary, that's great. But if it's not voluntary, then we'll get it another way. <laughs> and recruitment is they, they, they recruitment is hard and it's forced. and blackmail threats, and all of those types of things will, will be used ruthlessly. <clears throat> the second difference is that that in intelligence, traditional intelligence, by and large, you get the information, you're very careful about who you circulate it to, you make every effort possible that the enemy will not learn that the information is leaking in counter-terrorism you're going to get the information you use it tactically because it's about where the next bomb is going off it's where the explosives are and so the intelligence is used constantly very quickly all the time and that then of course means the terrorism organizations uh, become aware of a leak and you if you even go back to something like the ira campaign in northern ireland i mean the ira killed more of their own people than were ever killed by the security forces uh, and so, so it's a, a very dangerous, it's dangerous for the intelligence officers, uh, it's dangerous for the terrorists. It's a very down and dirty and dangerous game and very brutal. Mm. And it's not getting any easier, is it? No, it's, not, it's, it's brutal and tough and it's, 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 it's so different. Uh, you know, this isn't diplomats in the embassies uh, sipping martinis and sort of recruiting agents and say, how are you, my chap? <laughs> this isn't like that at all. <laughs> this is as far from that as it gets. It's, uh, this is this is doggy dog and it's tough.
1: The fight against terrorism does creep into law enforcement territory. And do MI5 and MI6, as well as other agencies, have different tactics to recruiting agents in the fight against terrorism?
2: They would have. I mean, as I said, it, it, it's, it's, it's much more proactive. Um, it's not the welcome mat. Um, it's, um, it's going after them. I mean, what they will t- typically do with a terrorism organisation is, terrorism organisations, practically all of them, they need finance. It's a very expensive game, running terrorism, and so they need finance. And the finance generally then means there'll be some form of a public front to to that organisation, some form of from maybe a little bit political or finance, whatever it is. So the first thing the agencies will do is identify that front, and then they will use that to to burrow in, to burrow in, in into the organisation. Um, and what they will try to do, in, in very often, is they will try to cause. A huge amount of distrust and so internal dissent, um, and and try to 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 create a sort of a cancer that that that, that will eat away um, at, at the organisation from the inside. Uh, there was um, in the eighties um, terrorist organisation, the Abu Nidal terrorist organisation, and that was effectively destroyed uh, by combined CIA and SIS action. And where the Nidal organisation. Um, executed three hundred of their own members and effectively became defunct, um, and that was a, a, as a result of a deliberate activity by C.A. and S.I.S. So yeah, it's it's it, it is different. They tend not to get involved in in the gathering of evidence, and that separates them from the police, obviously.
1: Would M.I. Five um, as a Conducting operations in the UK and potentially with Counterterrorism
2: Command, they're much more about kind of gathering evidence. It's a very different philosophy, isn't it? Yeah, because uh, I mean, MI Five will 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 their first priority, I would imagine. I haven't shared it with me, but their first priority uh, would be to prevent outbreaks. So, so that'll be the, the, an absolute first. Um, stop the bomb going off, stop the suicide bombers, halt it, stop it, do whatever it is. And then the second priority then will be working with law enforcement uh, to try to take those people out of circulation and, 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 and build the evidence for, for a trial. And now they're now allowed to introduce things like uh, surveillance, audio and video and stuff like that, which traditionally they, they didn't because they would be compromising methods of collection. So yeah, so it's, it's a, it really is a two-handed strategy. First of all, stop it. And then get them in jail.
1: Mm, it must be very difficult, I suppose, to be able to actually gather evidence that could convict someone. I'm assuming.
2: Yes, yeah, and because you know your 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 targets are are. Surveillance conscious, um, they know that 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 the security services are out there, and they they'll take go to extraordinary lengths. I mean, the, you'll have meetings where where it's written down a sheet of paper and stuff and handed sheets of paper back and so on like that. You know, I mean, they would use all of 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 the tricks that they can, uh, and then so then it's a question then of of um kind of said, I mean really. Once an agency like MI5, with the resources available to it, because it works very closely with GCHQ, if they light on you, you know, with reason, um, you're going to find it very, very difficult to, to get out of their glare. Their biggest problem is, is, is identifying from a population of 60 million, the, the, maybe the 100 or 150 people that might be active. Um, but once they identify you, they'll get the goods on you. <laughs> yeah, they will. <laughs> yeah, that's what they're good at. <laughs> yeah, they will, yeah. <laughs>
1: so um, it's difficult not to focus on terrorism when talk about espionage today, but there are. Other other threats other issues aside from terrorism, what are the key areas intelligence services will be looking at today
2: well uh, you 've got a brexit, which I, I think is a, is a really interesting thing um, during the second world war Stalin um, came, came up with this thing when, when the, he was in the, russia was invaded, and he said everything for the front, uh, and every single sinew of the Soviet state was developed in, 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 into defeating the nazi aggression and and I think um Occasionally, intelligence services will, will get this sort of call out, you know, like, say, with the Falklands War, one, we cannot allow the Argentinians to get those missiles. Um, and I think now Brexit will be a big clarion call to the British intelligence services, GCHQ and SIS. Um, this is hugely important in terms of Britain so I think there will be a big, big effort made uh, to learn as much as they can about the different governments negotiating positions and so on. I think that's, that's a given. I think things like nuclear proliferation are very important and um, because obviously it's, it's there. I think other areas that, that I think would matter to, the, to them would be things like uh, organized crime on a very substantial scale would, 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 would be an issue. Now, traditionally, the intelligence services, certainly SIS, doesn't like going after drug pushers. They, they sort of think that's for the Macintoshes, really. You know? <laughs> but I think if, this, if the threat is big enough, they, they, they will rise themselves to do so. Uh, but you would look at things like um, economic threats, um, there's quite a few ex-SIS people would work with, say, with Bank of England uh, because the protection of sterling um, and the protection against any attack on sterling, I mean, you, you know, for, for, for whatever reason, um, could be important. So they would have a wide range of, of things, maybe looking out for, for, for huge commercial opportunities uh, for British companies perhaps, very, very large defence contracts. Intelligence Services might get involved in a little bit of listening there. yeah. Plenty. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and one other thing we're seeing at the moment as well is the sort of um, rise of Russia. It seems to be kind of coming back with a vengeance. I mean, is there anything you got know, to tell us a little bit about that?
2: Well, you know, uh, SIS was set up uh, formally, if you like, as an organisation in 1909. And uh, in the Cabinet Office papers that that that, that you see from that era, um, it was referred to officially as the Anti-Bolshevik Secret Service. So it was actually set up... Um, really set up to counter the Russians and the Bolsheviks and that has never gone away. It, 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 if the Russians are obsessed about British intelligence and um, up to about 1956-55 uh, they refer to it as the main adversary um, and if you like go back to the Crimean War and stuff like that. So so th- there's an ever present rivalry there and um, the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service is based in a place called Yasinovo which is outside Moscow and over the last seven or eight years, it has at least tripled in size. So, if the building, the headquarters building has tripled in size, then that's indicative. You know, there's got at least as many people there. And uh, so, they're they're there. They're as active in 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 London as they ever were. Yes, they are. Um, and and it's, it's 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 always the thing about like <clears throat> was it communism, was it Russianism? And I actually sort of think it was Russianism rather than communism in the Cold War. <laughs> If I can use that expression. <laughs> um,
1: and it's also been alleged, I was just reading in the paper, just, uh, I think it was yesterday, that um, the CIA now might be investigating whether Russia might be trying to um, subvert the American political process at the moment with Trump and people like that. I don't you have any thoughts
2: on that. <laughs> <laughs> well... Um... <clears throat> I think Trump is doing it for them, uh, so I don't think they need to. I don't think they need to worry. Um, I, I, you know, I no, um, I, I don't know that they were actually they would actually be trying to deliberately subvert it. But you wouldn't know. I mean, they, they, they could be a bit of mischief making, all right. Yeah, I say it more like mischief making, really, um, just because they can do it and they can stir the pot and. and um, annoy the Americans but I don't think they're actually sort of sitting down in, in the Kremlin and sort of saying you know let's get Trump elected and so on you know I'm not even sure they'd have the money if you think about how much it costs to get elected yeah. President of America I <laughs> yeah. and uh, so so I don't know but I don't think so Where can um, our listeners find out about you and your work? Sure uh, I have a website um, and it's www, uh, Hayes, that's paddyhayes. that's P-A-D-D-Y H-A-Y-E-S Dot com and um, there's everything about me that I want to be known and uh, and a little bit maybe that I don't and but you can log on to that you can see a lot of Cold War stuff a lot of a bit about spies and uh, that's the best thing to do thank you so much for having me Chris thank you, Chris, thank thank you. it's you. great to be here if you've enjoyed
1: the show please spread the word by connecting with us on Twitter by going to at drycleanercast For more information about the podcast, please visit our website, www.drycleanercast.co.uk.
0: Thank you for listening to the Dry Cleaner Cast.